Would you take your Bible with me this morning and head to 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be, again, looking at verses 10 uh, in chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has a few in his hands. He'd be happy to bring you one if you need, uh, if you need to, uh, to have one in front of you. I would highly recommend seeing these words that come to us through the Apostle Paul this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is, is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of a noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. This is the last week we'll spend in this text, in these verses. Uh, this has quickly become my favorite Christmas text. Um, you might say, well, how is this a Christmas text? I hope to uh, tie Christmas to this this morning, especially as it pertains to uh, the humility that Jesus Christ came to earth in. So it's really important, though, that we get these verses down. This, 
this whole letter hinges upon this whole letter hinges upon these verses these very things that Paul writes to the church in Corinth these things that Paul writes to the church in Corinth are the beginnings of how he's going to admonish them and and how he's going to uh, how he's going to uh, encourage them to live from this point forward. And when we get to verse, chapter 2, and when he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He is telling them the way in which he comes and the way in which Christ, Christ Jesus came. So we've considered in this text so far, uh, we've considered a handful of things. We've considered especially the unity that Paul commands as it pertains to, as it pertains to uh, the, the Corinthian church. And the understanding that earlier in this text, especially in verse 10, when he commands them to be united and to have no divisions among them, he is giving them uh, an argument that the gospel is of first importance, that the gospel is primary, that there is nothing else that they should put in first place in their lives as a church than the gospel. And then... He begins talking about the difficulty of the gospel and that no one can be saved outside of the truth of the gospel and that it cannot be reasoned or logicked out according to worldly wisdom, but, but it's a, it is an appeal that comes directly from the wisdom of God. This is what we keyed on last week when we saw that, that the gospel is foolishness if you apply worldly wisdom. And so when we get to this text this morning... Um, we see very clearly a continued appeal in the way, again, that Paul approaches the church in Corinth. It's interesting when we come to these texts, we seek to expose the meaning. I don't know if you've heard this term. It's expository preaching. We want to be a people who come to the text and read out of it what we see that's in it. We don't want to read into it our own biases or preconceived notions. We don't, want to, we don't want to come to the text and begin to put our experiences or overlay our own worldly understandings onto it. We want it to speak to us. But the great, the great irony in doing something like that is coming to a text is seeing that while we seek to expose the, the original meaning and the authorial intent that lies behind it, what it winds up doing is exposing us. And that's what this text does this morning for us. It exposes us. It exposes three incredibly important things that we tend to rely on in our day-to-day rather than trusting in God. Our family is doing an Advent activity that's centered around the family tree of Jesus. And so there's this picture that we get these little cards and we put them up on the wall and it makes a picture of a tree and then it highlights the lives of individuals in the Old Testament that are part of Jesus's family tree. And it's fun. That there's a scripture that we read and then a little paragraph with an explanation of how this person went about trusting the Lord and then, and then finally some questions to ask our kids and they're able then to respond. But this week we, we got to, well, there were a handful of people that we got to over the course of the week, but this week we talked one night about Jacob. And it became very clear just how much of Jesus' family tree ex- exemplify exactly what Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth. Jacob was the second twin. He was a twin, but he came out second. And so all his earthly inheritance was 
uh, literally nothing. Esau came first. But Jacob winds up getting the inheritance and being renamed Israel, and he becomes the father of the men who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob went from nothing because of his birth order to being a pivotal figure in the history of God's, God's people. God shows what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. That is a summary statement of the life of Jacob. Or we thought about the book of Ruth earlier this year, and we saw a Moabite widow, someone who fell outside of God's people, who was born outside of God's people. But she trusted the Lord, and she became an integral part of the family tree of Jesus. She had no rights, she had no resources, and she had no prospects, but she followed her mother-in-law Naomi back to her land and to her people. And her direct line would ultimately lead to David. When we think about David in the Old Testament, the youngest of many sons of Jesse, who didn't even get a call in from the field when Samuel came to anoint, came to anoint the next king of Israel. Surely it couldn't be him. Surely the wisdom of the world, surely the power of the world, surely the birth order and the family of which David resided was not, was not good enough, but it was good enough for God. And so when we consider this big chunk of text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and bleeding over into chapter 2, Paul just lays it out. Verse 26, again, we've even titled our sermon series this. Consider your calling. And Paul will appeal to this, although not directly, Paul will appeal to this as we move throughout the rest of this, this letter. Consider your calling. Consider that which you came up. I'm not in a vocational sense. When we think about calling, we oftentimes think, well, that's my vocation. That's my, that's my job. That's what I'm good at. That's what I'm capable of. But what Paul wants to do here is draw this clear distinction between what it means to be capable of something and what it means to be called to something. Because if we are to do what this text says, I'm way ahead of myself already this morning, but if we're to do what this text says and rely on our earthly wisdom, if we're to rely on our power or authority that's granted to us in this earthly realm, if we are to go to a place where we think that it is because of where we were born in America or because of the family that we were born into or because of anything that came to us as a result of birth, if we were to think of any of those things put us in a position where we became more lovely to a holy God, then we are totally off base. And God says, Paul says to us, through, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul says to us, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose... the foolish, to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose, and we love when Paul gets to this place because it's like, the, yeah, we've got foolish, and we've got wise, and we've got 
weak and we've got strong, but then Paul just says, to heck with it all. <laughs> Not many of you are of noble birth, but then he says, but he says, the, the, those who are low and despised in the world, even things that were not to bring to nothing, things that are. Like, let's just cover all of our bases here. Consider your calling. Now again, not vocational. But consider when the gospel took hold of you and your eternal trajectory changed. Not just when you hear the gospel proclaimed with your ears, but when you believe the gospel in your heart. And I think this is a, such an important thing for Paul to say in verse 26. Don't consider your capabilities. Consider your calling. Because it came to you at a time when you were subscribing to a way of thinking that would have allowed you to never draw this conclusion. The conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. And the only way to get to God is through him. You were living a life that would have never allowed you to experience transformation. Consider your calling. Consider how your heart changed and how it is continually being changed. And then in verse 26 again, after he says, consider your calling, he says it very clearly. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. And Paul argues here that you can't know God through the wisdom of the world. What the world calls wisdom. Not many of you are wise. And even if you could, none of you had it anyways. The world will look in at the church and will make some assumptions. They say, wow, look at all of those people gathering together doing that thing. And now culturally accepted or not, the world will look in and what they will not say is look at all of those wise people gathering together to worship an invisible God. And again, the utter foolishness of the gospel prevents that every time. It is because of the gospel's power that we were drawn into fellowship of the local church. Now, certainly people on the outside, again, because of cultural acceptance, will look in and say, there are some residual benefits to the gospel that look pretty neat to us. And we like to apply some of those principles into our lives. The gospel has these residual benefits. We call this common grace. An easy thing that the world thinks is cool and a thing that we talk about frequently is community. The world loves the word community. All the time. And we can get behind that, the world says. Of course we love to be, be of that and we love to care for other people and exist together. But friends, as the Buffalo City Church and as those who subscribe to and think about the understanding, our understanding frequently of what community is, we as a people must understand first and foremost that community is a gospel result and can only be in its truest form a result of the gospel, taking hold not to an individual but to a group of people. 
The world likes community as that residual benefit, but they can manufacture it for a while. But the luster of it wears off, the shine wears off. No longer is it something that they can get excited about over time because the actual difficulties of life and being present with others through those difficulties will cause drift. But there is no community without the gospel. And let me back up because I'm going to defend that statement. There simply isn't community without the gospel. There are cheap imitations, but if you're here this morning and you're drifting in and out, it's because the understanding of community that you have isn't rooted in the gospel. What does this mean? Our earthly relationships are designed to reflect our relationship with God. God created us for a purpose. God created us to have communion with him. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a little bit. We call this communion, oftentimes, but most of the time we sort of miss the meaning that comes behind using that term. This is an expression of the event that took place, broken body, shed blood on our behalf so that we could have right relationship with God restored in communion with God restored. Communion isn't the bread and the juice. Communion is what was restored because of what this represents. So our earthly relationships are designed to reflect that relationship with God. And God created us again for communion with him. And obviously those words communion and community are related. Communion is the cultivation of intimacy between, between individuals. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and communed with them. Sin broke that communion. Jesus restored it by dealing with our sin problem and guaranteed that perfect communion with God would happen again in new creation by defeating death in the resurrection. And so the gospel then is the grounds for community and can be the only true expression of community because it is a reflection of our relationship with God. Our communion with others reflects our communion with God. And when we grow in our likeness of Christ and acknowledge that we bear his image, and others do as well. And as we cultivate this intimacy, it grows when many people are experiencing communion with God. And then communion with others, we have community. Again, there's no community without the gospel. If you're hoping to experience community with the people of Buffalo City Church, but don't regularly commune with your heavenly father or seek to grow in intimacy with others, then you've skipped some pretty important steps. And again, the markers of those skipping steps is apparent. Manufactured community always loses its luster. (laughs) It always becomes a drag because people are people. We grow bored. We remain largely superficial. And the actual difficulties of life and being present with others through those difficulties will cause drift because you have nowhere to point that person to. You can't point others to communion with God if you have no communion with him yourself. So the world will look in at the church and quickly in their worldly wisdom will say, yes, There is some benefit to what's happening in that space, but the basis for what's happening in that space is something that we simply cannot get behind. 
It's simply not a truth that we can subscribe to because it relies on trusting a man who lived 2,000 years ago, was nailed to a tree, went into the ground, and came back victorious. This is, as we know, super offensive to the world. The ability to see value in community is a common grace given to all mankind. The ability to experience community is a specific grace given to those called by God. Not according to worldly wisdom, but according to the wisdom of God. So Paul says, consider your calling. The gospel didn't come to you because of your power, but not many of you had it anyways. Your weakness is what you made, a, you made you a candidate for receiving the gospel message. Not your strength or earthly authority. But power did come to you in the gospel. Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How is it that power comes to us? It comes to us in the gospel. The Jews wanted to see signs, fire coming down from heaven. The Greeks wanted wisdom, but the craziness is Jesus brought about the fullest expression of both. And when we get to Christmas, we find that it is actually in the most unexpected, strangest way possible. And so when Paul says power here, I don't think he means that you are a CEO of a company or have influence, but that you are pretty inconsequential. So the gospel came to you and you were powerless to bring it about. The power you needed to please God was not in you. And so Paul says, consider your calling. The gospel didn't come to you because of your family. Now many of us grew up or had the great benefit of growing up in a house that professed Christ, that where you heard the gospel regularly. Some of you in this room didn't. Your family didn't save you. God did not look at you and think to himself, that person was born into something really great. John sums it up like this. He says in John 1, 12 and 13, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And so bloodlines didn't save us. Bloodlines don't save you. God is the one who saves in him alone. Charles Hodge, a commentator and expositor, writes this. He says, human distinctions are insignificant and inefficacious in the sight of God, who is sovereign in the distribution of grace. And this is the part that is incredible. God chose foolish. God chose weak. God chose low and despised things. God chose things to display his wisdom, his might, his power, his glory. God didn't choose you because you're you. God chose you because you're, he's God. And because he's God and he has chosen you, you now have the wisdom of God. You now have the power of God. And you are now part of the family of God, have been adopted therein, and it all came to you in the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians in the next letter that he'll write to them that we have recorded, he will tell them that you have this treasure in jars of clay. 
If there is treasure and it is in a jar of clay, it, is, it makes no sense at all to look at that treasure and then to exalt the container. Husbands, if you give your wives a piece of jewelry, she will open up the box and she will say, wow, this is a wonderful box. She will not say that. She will say, thank you for the necklace or the ring or the whatever piece of jewelry that's contained. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We have the wisdom of God, the power of God. We've been adopted into the family of God. So, do you consider yourself wise? Set it aside. The wisdom of God is better. Do you consider yourself powerful? Set it aside. The power of God is better. Do you consider yourself to have a great family? Set it aside. The family of God is better. And these are better and they are yours in Christ. And this is that so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what happens then to boasting? It is excluded because you are not saved because of your wisdom or your strength or because of your family or your birth, but by God alone. And this should humble us and it should bring us great joy because it is not based on the performance that you are able to conjure throughout the course of your week in your day-to-day. You will make mistakes. You will break down. Your body will decay. You will not be able to accomplish basic tasks. Your mind will be absent from your family, from your home. You you will not be able to perform in the way that is able to conjure what only God can bring about through the truth of the gospel. It should bring us great joy. Friends, you can't and you don't have to. Why? Look at verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He has become to us the wisdom of God. He has become our right standing with God, our holiness, our debts are canceled in him. I love the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? We do it by recognizing that we have nothing to boast in but him. How do we enjoy him forever? by recognizing that we have nothing to boast in but in Him. If we want to use 2018 language, we say humanity's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is why you and I were created for that communion with God that comes about because of His work. No other reason, not to do big things, but to show God is the doer of the biggest things. 
The biggest thing is that he plucked you right out of your hell-bound, headlong trajectory and made you his child. God created you to reflect his glory, not to pursue your own. But when we get caught up in pursuing God's glory, the reflective surface, the mirror that our life is supposed to be, when we get caught up in pursuing our own glory instead of God, that reflective surface is shattered into a million pieces. But in Christ, the ability to reflect God's glory is restored. And Paul is telling us how that God is going to make us able to reflect his glory because God removes our ability to boast because of salvation is his work and he will take foolish and weak and low and despised things and make them his children, inheritors of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so friends, Christmas is the perfect time to think on these things. Wise, powerful, noble birth. How did it please God to send his son as a baby? Friends, the wisdom of world comes with age. The wisdom of world comes with experience. The wisdom of the world comes with time. Could a baby lying in a manger be an expression of the wisdom of God? Jesus came to earth not in dramatic or supernatural fashion. Sure, there were supernatural elements. There was a star, a virgin birth, heavenly host. But Jesus was born in, that, in a way that everyone else was. The pains of childbirth were not foreign to Mary. Late night feedings, dirty diapers. This is the power of God. And he came not to a rich or influential family, but to a simple carpenter and his young teenage wife. His family was humble. His beginnings were simple. This is the one through whom we are welcomed into the family of God. What do we learn from all of this? First thing is this. Our desperate need, our desperate need to be humbly dependent on God and God alone. And we see this theme over and over again in Scripture, over and over again. God is God, and our tendency to elevate our position to the position that only God can rightly, rightfully possess in our lives. And this is pride. It's the inclination that we have to take, or have our action that we take to put ourselves in God's rightful position. When I say that I know what's best for me and then I pursue that thing and it's different from what God has called my best, that is glorifying self, not glorifying God. That is not humble dependence. It's a pursuit of self-sustaining. We follow Jesus into humiliation. And that word, very specifically, humiliation no one likes to be humiliated, but sometimes we love our interests so freely. We need to be reminded that we are not the center of all things. And that our human is a humiliating thought. But as God grows us, we will, be, we will be humiliated. This leads to humility that will undoubtedly lead to bringing God glory. Humility comes through the recognition of our position as foolish, weak, low, and despised. 
And that God moved us out of that position and joins us with Christ. No amount of life experience, no amount of strength, no amount of being born into the right family can make you right with God. God works these things so that no man may boast or in anything other than the Lord. So first, the pursuit of humble dependence on God and on Him alone. Secondly then, the thing that I would say in conclusion this morning This is a question for us as a church. Will we boast? Will we boast only in the Lord? Sometimes I wonder what openly boasting in the Lord would look like. It looks like a people who are and always are always talking about having that which they didn't earn. If we were sinful creatures separated from a holy God, destined to be an object of God's wrath for all of eternity, that was us, which it was before Christ Jesus. And if it was apparent that your wisdom couldn't get you out of that position, if it was apparent that your strength couldn't get you out of that position, it was apparent that your bloodlines couldn't get you out of that position, but God took you out of that position, would we talk about how wise we are? Would we talk about how powerful we are? Would we talk about the influence of our families? The answer is no, absolutely not. Openly boasting in the Lord is telling the world that all you have is in spite of you, not because of you. Your own flesh works to sabotage this incredible gift, but God won't allow for it. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower you and to seal you. So what are we boasting in Buffalo City Church as a church? What are we bragging on? Paul is talking to a church when he writes these words. They apply to us as individuals, but they're also intended to apply to us as believers. Let me say this personally. We've got some stuff to boast about. If we want to apply the wisdom of the world and the power of the world and the birth and all of those things that we're talking about, we've got some things to boast about. Buffalo City Church. We're church three years old. Most churches don't get to a point where they're self-sustaining until year three. We were self-sustaining at 18 months. We've had an opportunity to support missions and church planning in our region and across the globe. Most churches don't get that opportunity until they're much more mature. We have a good reputation in our community. We've got some big decisions on the horizon for our, our church body. Opportunities and engagements that very few churches our age have the opportunity to even consider. We've already exceeded the number of people in Sunday morning worship that is the national average for churches. Many churches struggle to gain generational diversity. I think we've been able to grow in that area. Churches struggle to see meaningful discipleship happening. I think we've been able to grow in that area. Friends, my point is this. If we wanted to apply the wisdom of the world, the power of the world, 
and a handful of other things to us that come from a worldly outside influence and overlay them onto ourselves. Friends, I think that we have a few, maybe I'm the biased pastor up here, but I do think that we have a few things to boast in, applying those metrics. But friends, listen to me very closely. Those things, even despite in a season of plenty, those things will come and go. Will we boast in those things? Will we boast in our generosity or our budget or a good reputation or our diversity or attendance or spiritual growth or theological precision or will our community or the number of kids that we have singing up front on a Sunday morning before Christmas? Friends, we must refuse to boast in those things. We must refuse to boast in those things. Because if we boast in those things, what we effectively do is elevate the gift above the giver. We effectively elevate the one who has given us and granted us things above him. We know the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. In the fifth verse, it goes like this. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And even as a church, Buffalo City Church, again, we may be, although we live in this YouTube generation where we can pull up mega churches and look at them, for our expression of the local church in Jamestown, North Dakota, we've experienced a season of, of plenty right out of the gate. There will be hard things that befall us. Friends, prepare your hearts this morning for difficulties. I'm not being pessimistic. It's the refiner's fire that will test our worth. But the way that we will endure difficulty as a church is this. Choosing to boast in nothing but Christ. Job says it in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job experienced incredible loss in his life. He lost his family. Job lost all of his wealth. It was stripped away from him. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's boasting in the Lord. That's what it means to boast in Christ. And our circumstances do not change our position before God because of the work of Jesus. Hardships come, difficulties are plentiful. Sickness, disease, death, financial ruin may happen. And if we choose as a church to boast in temporary successes, we will lose our resolve toward faithfulness when those temporary successes wane. But all that we have is in Christ. All that we have in Christ is eternal. And it cannot be taken away. Will we boast in the Lord? Final thing I'll say this morning is this. Then we'll go to the Lord's table. Consider your calling. Consider what Paul writes in verse 26. Consider your calling. Consider how the gospel came to you. And the response it demanded of you. This morning, consider your calling. Don't consider your capabilities. Consider what it means for you in your day-to-day. 
that you weren't wise, you weren't strong, you didn't have the necessary pedigree, but you were called. Out of darkness into light. When I mentioned at the outset that this is a text that sometimes when we sit down and seek to expose the meaning of a text, it winds up exposing us. This text exposed me in a dramatic way this week. Again, we as a congregation are maybe even in a season of, of plenty. And we've seen a lot of things happen and a lot of growth happen in our body. But this text made it abundantly clear to me that this week that I'm a weak and frail man. That I am an individual who has very little to do with any of it. And I stand up here and preach a sermon from week to week. But friends, I don't know. I don't know what the Lord is doing. And I looked at my wife last night and I said, why not year five? Why not year eight? Why now? What is God teaching us about our own subscription to worldly wisdom? What is God teaching us about our own subscription to worldly power? What is God demonstrating to us this morning that we think is our earthly right because of where we were born? God wants to mature us and grow us through the things that come our way. But friends, we first have to acknowledge that, that we have nothing to boast in other than Jesus Christ. We're going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to think through these things and remember the communion that we experience here is one that comes as a direct result of the event that these elements represent. Again, broken body for our righteousness, shed blood for the remission, the forgiveness of our sins. These elements are things that point us to the way in which we can have communion with God. This is not a ritual or a rite of passage. It is an intentional reminder and a place where we come together as a body to proclaim that those truths are what we believe. So this morning, I want to invite you all to come participate as we always do when the table is before us. Come grab the elements, remind, reflect on those things. Think about areas where you might be subscribing to worldly wisdom. Think about areas where you might be ascribing or subscribing to the power and influence that you've been given and what that means. Consider your own tendency to move towards an, a thought process that says I have the right to this or that because of where or how or to whom I was born. This represents our adoption as sons and daughters of God, a family from which we were alienated pre, before Christ. And so we're going to go, we're going to take these things,
If you're here this morning and none of this has made any sense to you, that's okay. If you're not sure where you stand with God, just don't, don't participate. No one's judging you or looking at you or thinking anything. We want you to experience the, the wisdom of God, the power of God. We want you to experience the way in which God has invaded our lives and called us his sons and daughters. That's through the truth of the gospel. Would you this morning just withhold if you're unsure what you believe? If there are kids in here, I would just ask parents to exercise discretion, as we always say. If there, if there are kids and you're not sure where they stand, or if they have yet to make a profession of faith, would you, would you just use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Friends, I'm going to pray for us this morning, and I would invite you to come forward and take the elements. You can head back to your seat and receive them. Receive them there.